Section 12 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11, by Charles Dudley Warner. Section 12. Impressions of Travel from a Naturalist Voyage by Charles Darwin. Among the scenes which are deeply impressed on my mind, none exceed in sublimity the primeval forests undefaced by the hand of man, whether those of Brazil, where the powers of life are predominant, or those of Tierra del Fuego, where death and decay prevail. Both are temples filled with the varied productions of the god of nature. No one can stand in these solitudes unmoved, and not feel that there is more in man than the mere breath of his body. In calling up images of the past, I find that the plains of Patagonia frequently cross before my eyes, yet these plains are pronounced by all wretched and useless they can be described only by negative characters, without habitations, without water, without trees, without mountains. They support merely a few dwarf plants. Why, then, and the case is not peculiar to myself, have these arid wastes taken so firm a hold on my memory? Why have not the still more level, the greener and more fertile pampas, which are serviceable to mankind, produced an equal impression? I can scarcely analyze these feelings, but it must be partly owing to the free scope given to the imagination. The plains of Patagonia are boundless, for they are scarcely passable and hence unknown. They bear the stamp of having lasted, as they are now, for ages, and there appears no limit to their duration through future time. If, as the ancients supposed, the flat earth was surrounded by an impassable breadth of water, or by deserts heated to an intolerable excess, who would not look at these last boundaries to man's knowledge with deep but ill-defined sensations? Lastly, of natural scenery, the views from lofty mountains, though certainly in one sense not beautiful, are very memorable. When looking down from the highest crest of the Cordillera, the mind, undisturbed by minute details, was filled with the stupendous dimensions of the surrounding masses. Of individual objects, perhaps nothing is more certain to create astonishment than the first sight in his native haunt of a barbarian, of man in his lowest and most savage state. One's mind hurries back over past centuries and then asks, Could our progenitors have been men like these, men whose very signs and expressions are less intelligible to us than those of the domesticated animals, men who do not possess the instinct of those animals, nor yet appear to boast of human reason, or at least of arts consequent on that reason. I do not believe it is possible to describe or paint the difference between savage and civilized man. It is the difference between a wild and tame animal, 
and part of the interest in beholding a savage is the same which would lead every one to desire to see the lion in his desert the tiger tearing his prey in the jungle or the rhinoceros wandering over the wild plains of africa among the other most remarkable spectacles which we have beheld may be ranked the southern cross the cloud of magellan and the other constellations of the southern hemisphere the water-spout the glacier leading its blue stream of ice overhanging the sea in a bold precipice a lagoon island raised by the reef-building corals an active volcano and the overwhelming effects of a violent earthquake these latter phenomena perhaps possess for me a peculiar interest from their intimate connection with the geological structure of the world the earthquake however must be to every one a most impressive event the earth considered from our earliest childhood as the type of solidity has oscillated like a thin crust beneath our feet and in seeing the laboured works of man in a moment overthrown we feel the insignificance of his boasted power it has been said that the love of the chase is an inherent delight in man a relic of an instinctive passion if so i am sure the pleasure of living in the open air with the sky for a roof and the ground for a table is part of the same feeling it is the savage returning to his wild and native habits i always look back to our boat cruises and my land journeys when through unfrequented countries with an extreme delight which no scenes of civilization could have created i do not doubt that every traveller must remember the glowing sense of happiness which he experienced when he first breathed in a foreign clime where the civilized man had seldom or never trod there are several other sources of enjoyment in a long voyage which are of a more reasonable nature the map of the world ceases to be a blank it becomes a picture full of the most varied and animated figures each part assumes its proper dimensions continents are not looked at in the light of islands or islands considered as mere specks which are in truth larger than many kingdoms of europe africa or north and south america are well-sounding names and easily pronounced but it is not until having sailed for weeks along small portions of their shores that one is thoroughly convinced what vast spaces on our immense world these names imply from seeing the present state it is impossible not to look forward with high expectations to the future progress of nearly an entire hemisphere the march of improvement consequent on the introduction of christianity throughout the south sea probably stands by itself in the records of history it is the more striking when we remember that only sixty years since cook whose excellent judgment none will dispute could foresee no prospect of a change yet these changes have now been effected by the philanthropic spirit of the british nation
in the same quarter of the globe australia is rising or indeed may be said to have risen into a grand centre of civilization which at some not very remote period will rule as empress over the southern hemisphere it is impossible for an englishman to behold these distant colonies without a high pride and satisfaction to hoist the british flag seems to draw with it as a certain consequence wealth prosperity and civilization in conclusion it appears to me that nothing can be more improving to a young naturalist than a journey in distant countries it both sharpens and partly allays that wanton craving which as sir j herschel remarks a man experiences although every corporeal sense be fully satisfied the excitement from the novelty of objects and the chance of success stimulate him to increased activity moreover as a number of isolated facts soon become uninteresting the habit of comparison leads to generalization on the other hand as the traveller stays but a short time in each place his descriptions must generally consist of mere sketches instead of detailed observations hence arises as i have found to my cost a constant tendency to fill up the wide gaps of knowledge by inaccurate and superficial hypotheses but i have too deeply enjoyed the voyage not to recommend any naturalist although he must not expect to be so fortunate in his companions as i have been to take all chances and to start on travels by land if possible if otherwise on a long voyage he may feel assured he will meet with no difficulties or dangers excepting in rare cases nearly so bad as he beforehand anticipates in a moral point of view the effect ought to be to teach him good-humoured patience freedom from selfishness the habit of acting for himself and of making the best of every occurrence in short he ought to partake of the characteristic qualities of most sailors travelling ought also to teach him distrust but at the same time he will discover how many truly kind-hearted people there are with whom he never before had or ever again will have any further communication who yet are ready to offer him the most disinterested assistance End of section twelve.